0: On Tuesday, July 20th at 1 p.m. Pacific, we'll be hosting our very first Golden Shadow YouTube live stream, where we will answer your questions and discuss union typology.
1: On Saturday, July 24th at 12 p.m. Pacific time, we'll be running an online workshop, which will explore alchemy and the four elements. You can sign up for that at goldenshadow.org.
0: Special thanks to our new patrons, Michael J., Amanda B., Mariana L., Brian C., and Lore.
1: Welcome to The Golden Shadow. My name is Aaron Rogerson.
0: And I'm Melissa Polizzi.
1: Today we are discussing alchemy. Alchemy is a very nebulous collection of concepts, practices, and lineages. It's hard to pin down exactly what we're referring to when we use the word alchemy, but it can be roughly broken down into two interpretations or maybe two branches, which are alchemy as a proto-scientific process, which is aimed at transforming physical matter. We might call this material alchemy. And the second branch would be alchemy as a spiritual process aimed at transforming yourself, which we might call spiritual alchemy. So material alchemy might mean something like literally trying to transform lead into gold, whereas spiritual alchemy might mean something like trying to transform the personal shadow into a higher version of self. So there's kind of the literal lead to gold or literal base material to gold. And then there's kind of the spiritual metaphorical base material to gold that's in yourself, that's internal, which is why the name golden shadow might reflect an alchemical process.
0: And really, I think like the greater point of that is that these, these two branches are very intertwined. Mm-hmm. Alchemy, I think, at its heart is this exploration of the relationship between consciousness and matter, between the body and the spirit, between the material and the immaterial, you might say. And alchemy has this really long history of both this very exoteric, practical, um, experimental manipulation of matter, which gave us really dynamic evolutions and technology like glassmaking and tinctures and herbal medicines and yes some of that was maybe so out there in its thought pattern like actually being able to transmute a metal into a totally different one that of course has proven to not necessarily be true but it was the beginning point of us as a human species really trying to understand what is matter what is reality Uh, What are the structures and dynamics? But as we tried to figure out, as we stared into this void of the unknown of, of material reality, we project into it our own internal content. And so sort of woven into this development of the alchemical process was imagery and symbolism and archetypes. And that's why you see this really dynamic dance between material alchemy and spiritual alchemy. They really are complementary and intertwined.
1: Right. So this is, alchemy is a good window into the psyche of the past Mm. or the consciousness of Mm -hmm. the past. Like how did people actually perceive the world, you know, a thousand years ago? I mean, 10,000 years ago, it's really hard to imagine what it actually would have been like to be alive and to be conscious. And Mm -hmm. we sort of assume, we kind of project our own form of conscious our own knowledge onto people from the past
0: like post enlightenment
1: right right and we say so what came first is sort of a materialistic scientific view of the world mm-hmm. that's a default humans just have that right yeah and then came all this weird superstition and religion <laughs> right that just seems so ridiculous in our modern age but it's actually backwards yeah yeah so what came first is the phenomenological perspective the mm-hmm. subjective perspective of reality the religious perspective um the notion that reality is what you see and feel and hear and what you what you are projecting, mm-hmm. which has all this metaphorical, symbolic content to it. And scientific materialism, this notion that, oh, actually, the world is just made up of stuff, it's material. Everything's just objects, and a lot of what we see or feel or, or hear is actually false.
0: Mm.
1: A lot of our subjectivity is actually false. What's real is sort of this, quote unquote, objective world. And that's what science tells us. And so people think about it backwards and alchemy is a good window into this because when early on in our history, when we're trying to make sense of what the world is, we're trying to form a kind of cosmology. Mm-hmm. What comes first is this strange metaphorical, mythological interpretation, mm-hmm. because that's actually our phenomenology. That's actually what we see as being real. That's our reality is a subjective reality. The objective notion comes later, way later, with the Enlightenment, with science. And so alchemy is showing this kind of strange intertwining of that. People are starting to play with this idea of science, of chemistry. They're getting this notion of being able to transform the world by doing these chemical processes, Mm -hmm. essentially. And the notion of materialism is starting to form at some point in the Middle Ages, essentially, before that, way, way, way before that, but still science is, is kind of becoming science in the middle ages.
0: Um,
1: and so that's how we need to understand alchemy is that there's a blending of this notion of materialism and science and the ability to perform, uh, operations, do experiments that Mm -hmm. produce these interesting results. Um, that's still intertwined with our phenomenology. Mm our subjectivity and our sort of projection onto the world as a place of myth and meaning and symbol.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's helpful to look at some of the origin points with alchemy, which in and of itself is quite difficult just because there isn't a lot of, um, sort of historical, I don't know, sort of source material that we can really trace back to, to say like, here is the source of alchemy. It kind of crops up in a few different places like um, Asia and India and um, the Mediterranean in somewhat similar times. But the, the particular branch of Western alchemy, which comes from more Greco-Roman Egypt um, culture, I think really shows this blending in a really kind of powerful and beautiful way because we see this a lot of pre-socratic greek philosophy which was really trying to explore the nature of matter concepts of energy what are the elemental dynamics right you
1: have natural philosophers yes exactly Natural yeah are you know 1000 bc 500 bc yeah they're actually kind of doing science Mm -hmm. it's not science yet and aristotle Is kind of like the founder of science, in, yeah. in some sense, of kind yeah. of being like, what is stuff made out of, yeah. and um, that's that is starting to form during that. Time of ancient Greek philosophy. Yeah.
0: And as that moves into Egypt, as we see the kind of empires expanding, we are met with a dynamic technology of Egyptian uh, ritual, which is based a lot on religious beliefs and around like life after death practices that involve really highly sophisticated chemical technology, like embalming. Um, They're actually working, they're doing experiments, they're working with material. We don't, at least to my understanding, I don't think we see the, like the pre Socratic and maybe even, maybe post Socratic, yes, but pre Socratic Greek philosophers, they're not really in the laboratories. They're not like doing experiments. It's a lot of theory. It's a lot of abstraction. Probably not,
1: not that we know of. Yeah. You, you would have had like medicine, like right. sh- shamanic medicine yeah. and stuff like that. They're still taking materials and mixing them together and discovering these concoctions, maybe that help people either, you know, you might heal a wound better by spreading some sort of like aloe on right, it. Right. Right. So there's like a, proto-chemistry happening there mm-hmm. and there's also you know probably like drugs hallucinogenic
0: oh yeah for like sure
1: mushrooms yeah kind of things that people are discovering yes. it's like yes. if you ingest this substance something happens yes
0: what does it's that a very mean? like shamanic very like folk very natural medicines that i think don't require as much manipulation yeah at least not to the degree and severity that the egyptians were doing it right and a lot of that technology was based around uh, the principle of like life after death, of rebirth, or of like setting yourself up to uh, kind of move into the that time after death in a totally different way than you were before. There's a whole transformational period that's going on. And so this blending of this kind of Greek rational philosophy with the Egyptian religious right, Um, I think is where you see really the origin of specifically Western alchemy, which Mm. is what most people think of when they consider alchemy, when they think about the major texts like Splendor Solace. Um, All of this imagery, all of this is born out of the Western branch of alchemy, and it has these really dynamic, interesting roots where we're trying to figure out what is the nature of matter um, but also it's laden with all of this um, symbolic archetypal religious uh, foundation and structure.
1: Right. So the alchemy that we're exploring is the form that's been popularized by by Yun. yeah, really. Yeah, right. Yeah. And Yun got interested in alchemy sort of in like the later half of his life. Yeah, but he got really into it, right? Really,
0: really into it. Yeah, I I think the history is interesting because he was um, given a copy of a of a translation of a Chinese alchemical text, The Secret of the Golden Flower, which you right. can read. And I think up until that point, he had had some interaction with alchemical texts, but just thought it was sort of I don't know mumbo jumbo. It's what is this? You read it, you look at it, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, but through the translation. Um, I think it finally struck him that what's actually happening here is that alchemical texts are laden and coded in symbolism and it's not gibberish, but actually it's, it's archetypal and woven into these, um, different operations and all of the ways in which you have to follow them to create something was actually a, um, a sort of analogy of the individuation process, that as an alchemist was trying to transmute some base metal into its higher property, they also were working on inner contents and transforming that as well. So it's this, I think it created this incredible opportunity for him to not only um, sort of create a, a line of connection between his own analytical psychology theories, but to show that kind of there's this impulse within within the human psyche to both create in the outer world but at the same time to sort of individuate within and that's what a lot of these texts show. You, you start looking at them, you read them symbolically, you even read them as if they're a dream. And what you see is that development of psyche, the, the striving towards wholeness, that, that gold that you're trying to get to, the philosopher's stone is actually like the Jungian self or that, that striving towards wholeness. And I think that, uh, that, that that really caught him in a powerful way that he basically spent the last few decades of his life Writing, researching, studying alchemy.
1: So what he was noticing, right, is that some of the, the dream imagery, the symbols that were coming up in his practice, mm-hmm. um, the things that he was exploring with his clients, yeah. the same symbols, the same images yes. he was finding in the alchemical text yeah. or yeah. in you know, alchemical images, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. he sort of sought connection yeah. of like, okay, well, why, why are the dream images appearing here the same as what these alchemists were coming mm-hmm. up with? and Yun being the kind of mind that he is, he sees these creations, these things that emerged from the past, all these these stories, this mythology, these religious ideas, these deities from the past. He sees them and he doesn't dismiss them. Right. He doesn't just say, okay, well, that they're just, it's superstition. Mm-hmm. These people are just ignorant. And that's why they had this idea of like uh, a god of the harvest. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's because it's a superstition. Like Yun doesn't do that, right? That's yeah. like the natural approach that, a lot of modern thinkers have is because they do have this strong understanding of scientific materialism. Mm-hmm. Is that like all? That's all that's real is matter, right? And so, if you believe in God, you're just stupid. You're just ignorant. But young doesn't see that, mm-hmm. right? Jung yeah. is like, okay, but but, but why? Yeah. Why is this cropping up universally? Yeah. Every culture is developing something like this. Every yeah. culture has a mythology, and these mythologies have universal themes. Yeah, and they these religions develop, and they have universal themes in the religion. Mm. These images. Yeah. develop the dragon as an image is like, yes. this seems to be appearing in multiple places around the world, independently of each other. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Yeah. There has to be an explanation for that. Yeah. Right. And so he does the same thing for alchemy, right? He doesn't yeah. just say, okay, well they were proto scientists. who just didn't know what they were doing. He says, no, it's not that simple. Yeah. There's something happening here that reflects an inner world. Yeah. That's being projected onto the yeah. outer world. And that's young's interest is like, what is the structure of the inner world yeah. and how are we seeing it projected through alchemy
0: yeah i mean and it's also like a revelation of the collective unconscious which if you think about he's such a pioneer young and i don't think he always gets the credit he deserves in our more modern society but his putting out a, a type of theory like the collective unconscious which is really a it, it's postulating that we have a shared psychic DNA, that, like, just as we have biological instincts that carry on through our genes, we also have psychic, you know, genetics as well. And that we have these similar experiences, these archetypal structures that will produce imagery and experience and help us derive meaning. And all of us share that, no matter what, at that kind of core level of psyche is something that is collective. And that is being seen in alchemy. That's another. Uh, another indication that what he was picking up both through comparative religion and mythology and fairy tales and things like that also is is happening in alchemy because you can even look at the chinese branches or the indian branches and although the, the cultural sort of nuance might be a little bit different there was still like a very similar core this kind of striving towards like the diamond body or the philosopher's stone or you know transmuting something into gold there's this this urging towards something higher towards the the transmutation of that dark shadowy prima materia into something higher and alchemy was I think it it also is really compelling because what we see in like the history of alchemy is that there isn't like schools of alchemy. It was very underground, it's very hidden. A lot of the alchemists are working um, separated from one each other from one right. another. It's like
1: a very solitary practice. Yeah, it's very, very solitary. Kind of like the stereotype is kinda of like the like mad scientist like in the basement. <laughs> Yeah. doing, doing uh, forbidden experiments yeah, the church if yeah. the church found out like yeah at some point it was, it was extremely
0: extremely heretical <laughs> right. but you see similar themes similar developments across centuries. And of course, there's influence. Of course, there's certain texts that can be read and certain operations that can be carried over. But there's actually a lot of differences across alchemy. There's really no agreement that this is the one way. Here's the 12 operations you must follow. Sometimes it's six, sometimes it's seven, maybe it's four. There's stages, there's operations. What is the prima materia? It could be all these different things. And yet, it seems to circumambulate something. Uh, central something they're all working around something similar. So I think especially for the Jungians, that's very exciting. It's very pure. It's almost like the fairy tale material, fairy tale material that feels to them to be very laden with um, very pure unconscious imagery and symbols. So for them to study that, it's something that is a, a little bit more of a direct connection to collective unconscious versus something more. Like a national mythology that's kind of woven its way through the culture and has had all of these different iterations and different hands uh, that have kind of stirred it and changed it.
1: So let's entertain the notion that alchemy is just a material process. What, what were the alchemists literally mm-hmm. doing? Yeah. So they were they were doing experiments. Mm-hmm. They were they were playing with materials, yeah. matter, running yeah. running operations. They were trying to do things like turn lead into gold. (laughs) And this isn't just like a myth, right? Like there were there were actually people trying to do this. For sure. And of course, you can understand why someone might want to find out how to turn lead into gold. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And it might seem like that could happen. Like why not? Yeah. Like other experiments have produced interesting results. There must be some kind of way to create a super powerful substance like Mm -hmm. gold that can make me rich or something like an elixir of immortality. That must be possible I I can create that. Um what are the things that they were like literally doing
0: yeah i mean i think it's easiest to think about that these operations started with some sort of core matter uh that prima materia, like the original material and that there was i think just first and foremost interest in exploring and seeing what happens when you add different things in when you apply heat to it when you add acid to it when you put it in water when you freeze it when you distill it it's just to be
1: clear the prima materia was this a like one substance that they always started with like one substrate and were they arguing about like what is the sort of original base material Mm. of the world (laughs) in some sense or is it kind of more just like where, where do we start our experiment? What yeah. is this material? I guess like, think- it's a universally accepted sort of idea of like yeah. there is a prima materia. Definitely not. No.
0: I think that's like always the like rule that you can apply to alchemy is like, what is this actually? Is it agreed upon? And then everyone's going to have a different answer for it. I think most commonly you hear that prima materia is lead okay. because it's this really dense um, manipul- manipulate, little bowl very easily manipulated material sure. um, that uh, was had a, you had a lot of access to that you could work with readily. And then there's this idea then that that could be worked with, that, that you can add different things, that you could apply different um, sort of uh, different environments to it and see how it changed and how it transformed. So lead is often something you hear about a lot, but like the prima materia is at its core is just supposed to be this this primordial original matter that anything could be applied to it and it should transform and it should change because at the core of alchemy, and this is starting to get into some of the principles, is that all matter contains some sort of transmutable dynamic to it. And at the heart of all matter is this kind of divine spark. This is like, we're kind of getting out of material alchemy already, but it's that anything could be put in the vessel, dirt worms you know water uh like feces like anything
1: right like lower is better lower is better sense. like what's the lowest of yeah the low? what's the lowest of the low like rotting flesh yeah. maybe is like what you would use and yeah that'll turn into gold
0: for sure it's like anything is redeemable we're getting into a lot of the more spiritual aspects but yes redemption transmutation into a higher property that even the that lowest material could be taken and worked on purified Brought down to its core essence, and its core essence carries some sort of spark of potential. And that potential, when it carries it in a more symbolic way, is like that divine spark. And I think when you think about that psychologically, it's like the turning towards the darkest, shadowiest material inside of yourself and saying, even that is worthy enough to be worked on. Even this could be transformed. Even this could be lifted up, integrated into something higher and redeemed. And so alchemy carries this really strong undertone of redemption of material and also of the, the kind of process that material can go through that brings it down to its core essence and kind of brings it back to a pure state. And when you do that, then it can become a medicine or an elixir of some kind or some sort of tincture. So there's a lot of dynamic experimentation that I think led us to like really famous alchemists like Paracelsus, who was using all of these techniques to create medicines based on the relationship between matter and reality, but also the internal process.
1: Right. So it, it, as you can hear, it's difficult to talk about alchemy <laughs> without having to be intertwined with some sort of spiritual process. Yeah. And one way that I think about this is that we sort of instinctually have these kind of symbolic containers, um, in which alchemy can kind of fit into. And so if we, if we imagine like, um, you know, a fantasy movie or we imagine like a fantasy video game, there's all these potions and things, right. Mm -hmm. And, And like in Lord of the Rings, for instance, there are kind of notions of, uh, you know, giving Frodo this, item that will light his way mm. and he holds up like this like kind of like this potion that yeah. Galadriel gave him and like shines light um and that makes sense to us as a symbol it's like that makes sense mm-hmm. like it makes sense that it exists um in you know in other uh like video games for instance there are like potions that you would take to like heal yourself there's potions you might take to cure some poison there's potions you might take to like um raise someone from the dead yeah there's a notion of like the love potion that makes someone fall in love. Harry Potter plays with a lot of these ideas. And these myths stand out to us because the symbolic imagery it resonates with an internal truth.
0: Yeah.
1: Of like it makes sense that there would be a kind of potion that you could take that would heal your wounds. Mm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Instead of seeing that theme in a story and just being like, well, that's that's stupid, or it doesn't resonate with me for some reason. And so if we can understand this stuff is being projected onto myth and it makes sense, why wouldn't you project it onto your own reality and have it make sense? Yeah. So the whole notion that, well, if you take a dark shadowy material like lead, let's say, or maybe like human feces, if you want to get really intense about it, (laughs) it makes sense that you would have a dark uh, shadowy material that could be redeemed into something that's like pure and magical. Yeah. And we would project that, onto the external world and say that makes sense because that's an internal reflection. Yeah. I feel that inside it makes sense that it would happen on the outside. Um, turns out that like literally a lot of that stuff is not true yeah. and that, you know, science, a lot of the things that we've discovered in science doesn't resonate with us at all.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like, that makes no, no sense whatsoever. Like what the hell, you know, all these scientific discoveries, like for instance, like um, you know, it turns out that humans like evolved from squirrels, basically. Like once upon a time, like human ancestors were just squirrels running yeah. around. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. No one's going to hear that and instinctually say, I always knew it. It's like, <laughs> no. It's like the, the, the discoveries of science are truths that don't resonate with us. Yeah. Uh, the discovery that um, our planet is round. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't look round to me. Yeah. The discovery that we're floating in an empty vacuum. It's outer space. We're just a planet floating in an empty vacuum. Like science tells us things and we repeatedly just kind of go like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. But you tell us a myth, you tell us a story that obviously isn't real. And we say, that makes sense. Yeah. And so we understand the alchemists are doing this. Mm-hmm. They are messing with science, but they are projecting what is intuitive onto these substances and saying yeah. what makes sense is sort of a redemptive process that turns darkness into light. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, why, why is that intuitive? Why is that something that resonates with me? It's like, because it reflects an internal truth. Yeah. That there's something dark within me that could be transmuted into, into light. Yeah. And there's, there's potential for me to be redeemed. I project that onto a substance and say there's potential for that substance to be redeemed. And that those two processes, the external and the internal are actually just inter, interwoven. Yes. They are a process that's linked And that's what the alchemists are doing. They're exploring this notion that the inner world and the outer world are related Mm. and that what you change in the outer world reflects what you change in the inner world.
0: Yeah. That gets us into the very important alchemical maxim as above, so below, which is actually like a reduction, you know, that which is above corresponds to that, which is below and that, which is below corresponds to that, which is above. Mm. This is one of the, first initial lines in the Emerald Tablet um, and...
1: Which is an alchemical text. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So as we trace this line of Western alchemy, looking at the kind of Greek-Egyptian influence, we see a lot of early alchemical texts attributed to figures, sometimes even like Isis, or in this case, Hermes Trismegistus, who may have been an actual individual who wrote this... um, the kind of text which supposedly contained really all of the direction and insights into alchemy. And that, of course, was like something that was passed down through Hermes or through through Thoth. And when we think about Hermes as this mythological figure, which we should probably do an episode on Hermes. Um, it would be really interesting. Would love to. <laughs> but Hermes was the the messenger god. He moved between worlds. He's really one of the only... Um, gods of the pantheon who really interacted with humans, went up to Olympus all the way down to Hades and embodied that mercurial um, trickster element that could shapeshift and carried insights. And so connected through the kind of Hermes-Thoth connection is like insights into science and magic and occult knowledge and all of these technologies. So alchemy is often considered like the hermetic tradition, AKA of Hermes or of Thoth, which would be the Egyptian equivalent. And through these teachings that we receive from the gods from the heavens, it also affects us down on earth. So the knowledge of the gods can affect us on earth or the movement of the planets has an influence on earth or that which happens within me also happens outside of me or as I manipulate matter, it also manipulates me. So the heavens and the cosmos, the above aspect, that kind of eternal invisible realm is kind of like the cause of the below, right? Like God created earth in seven days it's like mm. we didn't really just snap into existence often our uh, our mythologies trace our origin points from the heavens but w- then there's this dynamic connection there's this bridge because earth and physical matter and mortal man's lives are dynamically connected to the immortal realm so together they really make one thing. They're like the yin and the yang or, you know, just this dynamic pairing. They they encompass the experiences that we have. So the alchemists, following this idea, is that if we work with a matter outside of ourselves if we do these experiments, we are redeeming something in the material realm, but as a byproduct, maybe not even as the main focus, because often, especially in the Western tradition, the idea was to redeem like the deity or that spark of life that is within matter to bring it back to its higher property. But that in and of itself is a metaphor for our internal processes.
1: Right. So before we get into maybe some more specific uh, alchemical operations, what's let really try to ground this idea of as above, as above, so below, mm-hmm. right? So the, I think this is like really the core of alchemy mm-hmm. of how you can really understand why this makes sense okay. and why this is not just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Um, so it's related to projection mm-hmm. things we've already yeah. talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, you can understand that a, a object, a physical material object Is something that you can manipulate pretty easily with your hands. Mm -hmm. It's easy to do that, And if you think of us on an evolutionary timeline, um, animals are obviously manipulating things in physical reality quite well. Um, You know, you have squirrels that are grabbing nuts and they're taking them back to their tree. Um, And you can understand how what would come before consciousness is using your hands to manipulate the external world to achieve what you need to achieve. And when consciousness develops, we sort of exact that machinery, that wiring for manipulating the external world that gets exacted, which means it gets sort of repurposed, that wiring gets repurposed into consciousness and we begin to manipulate objects in our mind. Mm. Right. And so ideas, concepts, yeah. the notion of alchemy, that's an object that you and I are both manipulating in our minds, but we're using the same wiring as something that we might manipulate in the external world because that's how we evolve. Everything gets repurposed. It kind of gets higher and higher up. And so the same wiring, for instance, of uh, a squirrel responding to a snake with fear and like, Oh God, it's a snake. And like terror, that same wiring is getting exapted up into consciousness for us. Mm. And that's where like the dragon comes from. Right? So the sort of dragon of chaos is wiring that exists from squirrel days. Mm. We're not still freaked out about snakes. Some of us are. A lot of apes um, are freaked out about snakes. You like snakes. You think Mm -hmm. they're cute. But you can see how this animal wiring is sort of getting moved up higher and higher into consciousness where it's being repurposed. So it's as humans, it's much easier for us to have something outside of us to manipulate than it is to do all the manipulation in our head. Yeah. Which is why when we externalize things, it's easy to, easier to work with, right? If you're trying to figure out a problem, the simplest example might be like a math problem in your mind. It's a lot easier if you write it down. Like, don't try to do all the math in your head. Write out the process on a piece of paper. You're externalizing it. Now mm-hmm. that it's on paper, you can manipulate the math problem better than if you were trying to just, you know, hold two fingers to your temple and be like, mm, like trying to figure out the math problem. Like, that doesn't work very well.
0: Yeah.
1: Same is true for something like journaling. If you have a problem going on in your life, write it out, and it can be manipulated on the page, yeah. and you can save it and come back to it. And so the internal is being uh, projected externally, yeah. and it can be it can be manipulated. A math problem is projected onto a piece of paper; you can manipulate it. Your life is being projected onto a, a page of your journal, and it can be manipulated. Um, some of your internal. Uh, patterns can be projected onto a deck of cards, a deck of tarot cards, and they Mm -hmm. can be manipulated external to you.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, some other examples would be, uh, myth movies, stories. We readily project internal patterns onto the story, onto the movie, which is why they can make us cry. Like, it seems ridiculous that you could watch a cartoon, like a really intense, beautiful like anime, for instance, and it can make you cry. It's like, what the hell is that? It's like it's, you're not even seeing real people. You're seeing strange cartoons and still it's just like, oh, my God, the story is moving me so much. It's like yeah. what's happening? Yeah. It's like you're externalizing inner patterns mm. onto the outside. And if, for instance, maybe not watching a movie, but if you were going to write a story, for instance, you could project internal mythology onto an external story yeah. where it could be manipulated. And that's, let's say, narrative alchemy, which is something that we've explored in our active Imagination episode. But writing a story about your life where you are mythologizing your inner personalities, they can be manipulated. And Mm -hmm. now they're outside of you and you can uh, take this externalized content and you can actually mess with it. And the external process of messing with it outside of you is actually going to be re-internalized. And then it changes you on the inside.
0: Yes, yeah. I think this relates a lot to alchemy because as they work with outer material, it isn't just lead and that's what it is. And like, it's, it's a material thing and you know, it's this color and it feels like this, all of it carried a correspondence. And so everything that you're working with, it's very ritualistic, like very magical carried these dynamic connections that trace back to you, but also trace back to the heavens. So lead, yes, it is this material that you can work with, but it's also represented by Saturn. Um, by chronos like we, we connect back through the the greco-Roman pantheon and so there is this nature of like the dullness and the manipulatable dynamics of lead and Saturn can relate to like this day of the week and to these herbs and to this color and as you create all of these connections in the outer world so it also carries other um kind of emotional mental right. spiritual aspects so as you work on lead it's igniting and constellating different things inside of yourself, or you're working with copper, which relates to Venus, aka Aphrodite, which then we're getting into the archetype of relationship and love and or iron with right, Mars. Right.
1: So that's and that's that's a great illustration, right? Yeah, So let's say you're taking what oh, was it, copper?
0: Copper, Venus.
1: So you're taking copper mm-hmm. and maybe copper in itself doesn't have a meaning until you give it one. Sure. And you just say, okay, well copper represents Aphrodite. For some reason, and I mean, co- po- copper is kind of a weird example because something like feces is more symbolic <laughs> and something like gold is more symbolic for of sure. something. But but would say copper represents Venus, represents Aphrodite, it reflects relationships, mm-hmm. maybe it reflects your own sexuality in some way. Yeah. And so Venus as a relationship deity of some kind is not just arbitrary right yeah. it's actually reflecting an internal truth mm-hmm. which is there is some sort of realm inside of me maybe a collection of complexes or an archetypal you know constellation of something that's has to do with relationships and love and sexuality mm-hmm. and when i explore the myth of aphrodite that complex gets touched yeah or that archetype gets activated yeah and so there's a correspondence between this internal truth of like i have this story of a relationship in my life or you know my my romantic journey in my life is actually activated by exploring the myth of aphrodite and then aphrodite is associated with copper and so copper actually activates this uh you know romantic mythology inside yeah. of me and you can understand that if you wanted to actually engage with that romantic constellation inside of you, how do you do that? Mm. Can you just do it? Mm-hmm. Like, okay. I'm doing it now. Like just close my eyes. And then, like, no, I'm manipulating like this weird deep wiring inside of me that has to do with my relationship from 10 years ago. It's like, that doesn't make sense. But if you project it onto a story, yeah. suddenly you can kind of work with it. And why that's why the story might, might bring it all up and make you cry in this way that can't happen any other way. Same could be true as copper. Let's say you project this romantic mythology onto the copper and you manipulate the copper Mm -hmm. you are in some sense manipulating this romantic constellation inside of you
0: yeah yeah it i think it's really akin to what we see in modern day as like kind of like new pagan magic ritual that people might Mm -hmm. actually worship a deity in some form um or they're doing you know monthly rituals which is going to be either on the full moon or the new moon. It's like, well, why do I do it on this day versus this day? Well, the new moon is like the beginning of a new cycle. There's darkness. Maybe we can tap in deeper to ourselves. And I'm going to kind of do some sort of ritual that's going to set me up for achieving this goal. But you don't just think about it and then let it go. You sit down. You kind of tap into the different correspondences. Maybe there's uh, candles that are a specific color that relate to a certain theme, Maybe you're doing some sort of like love goal initiation kind of, you know, ritual. And so you've got, you know, green candles and and, an incense that relates to love. And you've got a picture of Aphrodite. It's like, okay, maybe they're not like manipulating actual copper, but the idea behind it is pretty much the same, right? And they're kind of working with it. They create this container. You might even kind of draw the magic ritual circle around you, begin the, the ritual do whatever needs to be done, sit in meditation, and then you close it out. And then there's this idea that you've kind of begun some sort of process. And with alchemy, there's a similar idea flowing through it. It's just taken new forms, like we're, this essence of human nature to want to work with these inner contents that are so mysterious and hard to grasp and really create structures around. And instead we'll project it out onto other materials through other rituals so that we can work with it. Because the the, the archetypal nature of the collective unconscious is that it's so overwhelming. Like, How do we really sit and contemplate the nature of love or war, you know, or time, all of these things that just kind of break the brain when you really try to hold them in, in your grasp. And so instead we parse it out onto material, into ritual, onto physical objects, objects, and then we can actually work with it. Then it's, it feels closer to us and we can create a relationship to it.
1: So what are the more, some of more of the uh, specific operations of alchemy yeah. there's like elemental stuff mm-hmm. there's um negrito is that, is that
0: yeah well there's different stages yeah. and the stages are a little bit different than the operations so the stages are kind of like what's how how is the material transforming and moving through its different transformations as you apply different operations to it so you have negrito the blackening albedo the whitening um in the sort of older versions, there was four, the yellowing, um, and then the last one is the rubedo, the reddening. Mm. And so those stages corresponded to actual ways in which the material itself might have actually looked and changed. Like as you apply a fire operation like calcinatio, you're applying a lot of high heat to purify and reduce something down to its ashes. Well, it turns like black first, okay. and that's a negrito stage. And right. that's symbolically, you might see that represented in alchemical emblems and text as like a black crow or as like a skeleton or things like that um but as it reduces down there starts to become like a whitening like the albedo maybe those those the dark bubbling of that material being broken down through the purification of the fire suddenly turns into white ash mm. and now it's white the whitening the albedo and then you might see that represented by like the queen, the white queen, or kind of moon imagery or silvery things. Um, And and so you have stages and those represent different aspects that um you take the material through and the operations is like what you actually um kind of chemistry uh derivatives like what what eventually became chemistry that is were the alchemical operations so you have the fire operations calcinatio. you're going to have like water operations solution you have distillation you're going to have things that are like way more amorphous, like the conjunctio, which is like sort of opposing forces that are coming back together. So you have things that relate very dynamically and in a grounded way, elementally, which is what we'll be going over in our uh, workshop next week. But um, you can look at it as the like air element, sublimatio, the earth element, coagulatio. But then there's also these different operations like the putrefactio and things. Something is kind of... um, breaking down and putrefying or the mortificatio, which is like something's dying. This is all wet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So there's really no, from what my understanding at least, there's no one way, no one list of operations um, or even the stages can change. But there is a thread through them all. But you will see certain alchemists saying, like, here are the 12 operations or here are the 7, etc. etc. But you tend to see those type of like elemental operations and then other ones that are a little bit more kind of amorphous, a little bit more, um, kind of abstract you might say.
1: Right. And if you approach these operations from a strictly scientific perspective, Mm -hmm. they kind of don't really make much sense.
0: Some of them do. It depends. Well,
1: They're clearly related. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But
0: like the process of distillation, you know, it's like something that we've taken and worked with and has actually moved into like the scientific paradigm for sure. Um, but then when you think about the symbolic meaning behind those that's, processes, it's that's, that's yeah.
1: like you have to like approach this with the notion of like, okay, this is not just science. There's actually sort of a symbolic process happening here. Yeah. And for yeah. instance, the blackening, <laughs> mm-hmm. right, You're saying that there actually is a scientific material process where you right. might actually burn something yeah. and make it blacken. And that might be the first step in your, um, your laboratory experiment or your operation to create whatever you want to create but the blackening itself is also symbolic. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: That's like the grip of the shadow. That's like the first moment that like the unconscious grabs you and you are in like, the dark night of the soul mm-hmm. like you are pulled under you are faced with the shadow and it's extremely overwhelming it's it's the return to this confusing melancholy place and so within this process of trying to kind of drive off impurities from some sort of prima materia and you see it blacken you also then see a symbolic translation of the the process of the encounter with the shadow the negrito
1: and the whitening is a next step.
0: It's like the dawn breaking on like the horizon mm-hmm. is, I think, a nice way to think about it. And that's like as you move through the darkness and you face it or certain things are going on, you gain realizations or you start to understand or you're starting to do some sort of process. Or maybe you're just reduced down so low that there's nowhere else to go but up. And that that is a kind of a sort of rebirth, like an early kind of lesser rebirth in a way and things, it's like the light starts to shine on the horizon. It's very much like a, you know, think of like the 10 of swords and the Rider Waite card. It's like the dawn after the dark night. Mm -hmm. And that's like the whitening, like life is starting to come back into that feeling of death, which I think when a lot of us go through a period of deep and dark depression, you feel lifeless, you feel detached, yet at a certain point, life starts to return. And then there's like a new potential um, and you move into a final stage, the rubido, the reddening, that's like kind of where we equate like the philosopher's stone with or really like the end of the work. And that's like the sun and it's like it's really rising now. It's like the pure redness of the power uh, and energy of the sun, which might be symbolically shown as like a phoenix like rising from the ashes or like the philosopher's stone is this kind of like red textured, um, you know, it's not even necessarily like a stone per se, but it's going to carry that color, the red for whatever reason. Um, And and that relates more to like a full cycle of actually coming through that dark process and being in a place where true shadow material has like risen from the dead and kind of turned into something that's more life-giving and life-sustaining like when you reclaim the shadow what's the golden side of it now you have renewed energy you have renewed life force and that's the philosopher's stone
1: right so we're seeing these patterns so again this is a sort of a phenomenological pattern it's mm. a sort of self-inquiry pattern a, yeah. a inner transformation inner journey pattern that we're seeing projected on to alchemy and you can see similar patterns in myth hero's journey yeah. is about going into the shadow reemerging in like a higher order there is kind of a transmutation of self that happens in the hero's journey in tarot you probably have a better idea <laughs> of what this should be but like for instance like the the movement from um death to whatever the next one is and temperance like temperance, and there's like the star mm. and then the moon and mm-hmm. the sun yeah like Death, star, moon, sun, especially, it kind of reflects almost like this sort of like the blackening being in shadow in some sense and emerging out the other mm-hmm. side. Maybe the reddening like is the sun. The point is like you shouldn't pretend as if these are all going to match up because they won't. Yeah. Because the psyche is more complex than that and nuanced. But the idea is that all these, um, the myth, the tarot, the alchemy, mm-hmm. you can all think of these as sort of a substrate on which we project inner material yeah. and then can manipulate it. And it's not to say that it's obvious what these things represent. It's not obvious what they represent, but they're circumambulating kind of the same thing yeah. in some way. And that's the way that alchemy should really be understood is yeah. yes, you can understand it historically. And there are definitely historians of alchemy who have studied it as a literal material practice mm-hmm. and they might just dismiss anything else. But Even though we can accept that as being true, we also understand that there is something more happening. Where there is myth being projected onto alchemy, there is symbolism. There is the internal world being reflected onto the outer world. Yeah. And if we do that, we can sort of begin to understand how alchemy might be something we can do in our own lives, Mm -hmm. right? And that's not to say that maybe you necessarily should set up a laboratory (laughs) and literally start trying to perform these experiments. Though you could, if you have the space. Yeah, some people do. And I do. And, they, and I'm sure there's a whole world of actually interpreting alchemy as a spiritual process, but also setting up a laboratory and kind of going over the different operations, like the blackening.
0: Mm.
1: Um, I don't know how you might do like the, uh, the prima materia. I guess you would have to come up with your own idea of what that was.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but the whole idea is that the alchemy as something that we can use practically in our own lives is you can set up some sort of workspace whatever that might mean to you maybe that's just your computer maybe you actually have a table full of items on it um maybe you have a bunch of cards or maybe you have some myths that you like working with or maybe you have a personal myth that you're writing which is something that i mess around with but having some sort of substrate on which you can project inner material onto it And this can happen very easily, very naturally with certain things. Like people very, very naturally project meaning onto mythology. Mm. That's what mythology is. You couldn't understand a story if you weren't projecting your own inner world onto it. Um, But you can do this and then you can manipulate that substrate. And then that manipulation of the inner projection can actually be re-internalized and create some change inside of you. Yeah. And for example, for me the whole notion of narrative alchemy is i've been playing around with different subpersonalities which are different like fantasy characters mm-hmm. and then i write stories about them and i have them interact with each other or dialogue with one another or i'll just try drawing them out and i am projecting a subpersonality maybe the banished inner child or the little boy out onto a substrate this mm. story and now I'm going to make that projected little boy who's me, he's going to go on an adventure and his adventure is he needs to save the world. And he goes and interacts with other sub sub-person- personalities and the manipulation of the external thing, which is the story, which is a bunch of, you know, words on a piece of paper is actually making me emotional. It's actually tapping into some deep stuff that I don't know how to access otherwise. Uh, Alyssa has witnessed this definitely of me getting really emotional, like telling this story. Hmm. Um, so, it's a kind of narrative alchemy. So, there could be something kind of like that. You could use tarot cards. Yeah. What else could you use? I mean, what are some other ideas here? What do people actually do?
0: Well, I, I think one way that I've tried to implement these, um, this, the sort of core and the heart of alchemy is to also consider throughout your you're not even just like your day, but throughout your week, throughout your life, how you can weave in this awareness of where you are in time and space and who, and what's going on within you. And how do you match those things up? Like if I want to do a monthly ritual where I sit down and I cook a meal, am I picking a certain day? that might correspond to, as I said, like where the moon is, you know, or that it's going to land on this certain time because I'm doing like, as above, so below, I am connecting to something outside of myself that corresponds within. So maybe I match up that like every new moon, I want to cook this meal that I cook from hand. And as I do that, it's like, well, what am I cooking? Why am I why am I sitting down to do this? What intention am I bringing? And maybe you choose certain recipes or you bake a certain thing that carries a certain meaning to you, or you give it a correspondence. And so you weave intention and this kind of like mindful awareness into the material that you're working with every day. And I think that's a really relatable and grounded way to actually do something like this is like, because ritual goes into that episode is so important. It's like the embodied metaphor, it's the embodied myth. And so to be able to tap into those aspects, they need to be, um, brought into your everyday life. So doing something like setting up that monthly ritual and weaving in those alchemical ideas into it, you know, that I'm burning this kind of candle because it means this to me. Um, I'm working with some sort of, uh, like, like I'm, I'm making a kombucha over the month. I'm actually transforming it. I'm fermenting it. I'm choosing, you know, apple because that means something or symbolically, I wanted to do orange. And what does that mean? It's like, you just look behind those veils of the concrete material into what these things could represent. And I think that is a way to begin accessing what alchemy is.
1: Right. And so like the, is it Cousinatio? Is it?
0: Uh, Yeah. That's like the fire operation. Right. So,
1: I mean, you could literally build a fire if you have mm-hmm. the space for it yeah and fire ritual the fire ritual <laughs> and you know the fire ritual by itself just having a fire already is like nice and spiritual and that's yeah. like, a, like honestly like, i think that's a cool ritual to have is making a fire every once in a while but you could actually look up audio. what is it about mm-hmm. What is it reflect what's the internal pattern that's yeah. reflecting what is the, what what part of the uh you know spiritual alchemical process is it right and you can kind of try to think about that as you have a fire you can set up a space with the fire where maybe you do something like you burn something maybe you burn some notes that you wrote yeah um maybe you uh do some kind of prayer or chant or meditation while the fire is burning um similarly you could Take a bath. You could get mm-hmm. into like really cold water, yeah. and you could look up what solution?
0: Mm-hmm. water. Yeah, solution.
1: What's that about? What mm-hmm. what, what what's the uh, the the alchemical notions here? Yeah, That's I could solution. also see
0: like swimming in like the ocean or in a big body of water. Absolutely, is, like, a if you very have access to
1: it for sure. Powerful
0: solution ritual. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I love these ideas, especially getting into the more like elemental aspects, because I think that gives us a little bit more concrete access to right, things. Right. Um, and that's really what we'll be doing in our mm-hmm. workshop is going over the elemental operations and like, how do we see these mythologically in pop culture and everyday themes? And how do we use it then as this vehicle of self-inquiry and development and transformation? Cause you can do it on your own, but it's helpful to really get that insight into what it symbolically means, what's the kind of archetypal structure behind fire, behind air, behind earth, and how can we interact with that? How can we invite that in? It can be as simple as a fire ritual, but maybe it's like the cooking of something. I don't know, I keep going to cooking because I think that's like a big thing for me. But, sure. Um, well,
1: I mean, it's a great example. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, cooking is definitely readily available to pretty much anyone listening to yeah. this, I'm assuming. Yeah. And yeah. you can definitely approach it like an alchemical process
0: absolutely and
1: you can eat it afterwards
0: yeah you, re- you literally get to ingest <laughs> it right so
1: <laughs> i mean that's interesting too to, to kind of think about like what what does ingestion mean and what's, mm. what's sort of the phenomenology there of like consuming something that you've created in your laboratory experiment anyways if you're interested in attending this alchemy workshop um just repeating the same thing we said at the beginning of the episode that's going to be on saturday july 24th at 12 p.m pacific time it's titled alchemy and the four elements, you can sign up for that at goldenshadow.org, and we hope to see you there. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash goldenshadoworg.
0: If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: See you later.